Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. Tom Farley is an advocate in the world of sobriety. He carries quite a message. Part of that message involves the fact that he's the brother of Chris Farley. His book written in 2008, The Chris Farley Show, is an amazing read and it talks about from other people's perspective, exactly what Chris Farley was was like uh, in and out of addiction. I learned during this podcast that Chris was sober for three years uh, and then went back out, relapsed, and ended up dying. After Chris passed away, Tom started to carry the message, but he did so while he was still drinking. Years into carrying that message, he got sober himself. And what happened to his life it's just fascinating, and it's great. Tom works for Rosecrans Treatment Center in Chicago. He's very available, and he's just an incredible guy. Uh, he gets it. He gets his ability to carry his message, and this message uh, is is tied into his brother and his brother's story. And uh, just an amazing guy. And and I felt really connected to him because I feel like we have very similar uh, family backgrounds. All right, so uh, my man Tom Farley is coming up next. But first, Kevin Susan. Okay, so what was it like for you in college as far as drinking was concerned? Because the, the cool thing, I mean, there's so much fascinating stuff about your story, really. But, yeah. you know, because the connection with, you know, your family and you cover all kinds of issues. And uh, me too. I'm, I got two brothers who are sober. And my dad was a functional alcoholic, whatever you, you know, yeah. if you want to use that term. And we were always around, you know, I, I was, I'm the youngest of two boys. I know you're the you're the oldest of four, and then your sister's above you, so you got five. Uh, so I feel like you know, I feel like we're kindred spirits in a way, uh, in, as far as like the family stuff is concerned. Totally. Yeah. I, so when you're growing up, you have, five, I guess there's there's five of you. What is that like in the household? <laughs> um, it was, uh, you know, just it, it was chaos, but mostly because like I think my dad loved that. He loved to just whip everyone into fr- a frenzy. And we were always, he always wanted us all together. So we were always there. We always had to deal with each other. We had no other choice. And so we were always together. And and uh, dad just loved to, and he loved to like go out in public with his like, like look what I've created and, and just whip us into a frenzy. And, and we would, we would, we would deliver, you know, it was just, it, it was just such a, it was such, just such a, you know show you know it was pretty you know well you talked about yeah. it you grew up in madison right yep and you and you moved back home you live in new york for a long time you moved around a little bit uh but you're back home in, in madison and i heard you talk about one time you know when you go around are you do people look at you hey you're, you're chris farley's brother and how do you handle that and you you talked about the fact that you're really proud to be a farley i mean that's that yeah. you know you guys were that family and it sounds like your dad, and just like everybody else, he had his stuff, but 
he was very proud of you guys and he was very positive and and it really sounds like you had a pretty good childhood yeah we oh we did and and again we had this kind of weird combination of my my mother this boston irish mother and her side of the family my grandfather was just just nuts just crazy and my mom's the same way you know so we had this kind of kind of fearlessness you know attached to our irish humor from my mom and my dad had like the real you know, he was always funny. He was always kind of jovial. But my dad had this. I, the only way I can describe it is like you know, like this the light on the back porch where every moth is just attracted to it. My dad just like when friends would come over to pick me up to go out, and all of us to go out, you know, on the town at night. You know, they'd say, "Well, we gotta say hi to your dad. We gotta go in and say hi to your dad." So <laughs> he just like in all our graduations, even the fathers. Of our friends would just like they'd swarm around dad he would just add this magnetism and clearly chris had that same thing you know i think all of us have a little bit of it but you definitely saw it the most in chris obviously because he was but you know he always had people around him that just couldn't take their eyes off of you know what's he gonna do next dad was the genesis of that and you you took more of a conventional route than, than your other brothers. Uh, they kind of ended up getting an improv and you go to Georgetown, you, you're in sales, you're in marketing. Yeah. Uh, but, but and I was talked about this at the very beginning and I got away from it. You know, your story is amazing because you got into the whole, this whole deal talking about Chris after the tragedy more than 20 years ago. And then you discover yourself after periods of being dry or whatever you want to call it that Hey, this is something that I need to look at, look look into myself about. And then now you're like on fire, continuing. You're still doing, you know, work as an advocate. You you still work at Rosecrans, yeah. Uh, and you're doing a lot of speaking, and uh, it's just more interesting than ever. I think your story and more more compelling than ever. Part of that, you know, we mentioned Georgetown. Was there drinking for you in college? Like, what was the partying like? What was the the consumption like? Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, and, and I'm, 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 I'm where I'm at now because now I, now I kind of see everything's starting to make sense for the first time. And like the Georgetown thing, like I always had like this, you know, I was the oldest son. So I had, I had all the pressure to kind of do what my dad, my dad went to Georgetown. So I had to go to Georgetown. My dad went into business. He was a successful entrepreneur. He, you know, had his own business. It was like an and asphalt I, company, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was kind of you know, but it wasn't you know. It was just kind of he had he had all these contracts throughout the state. Everyone just wanted to do, and it was just him and my grandfather before him. You know, going up against these huge oil companies bidding for the, you know, the county road paving business, and Dad would get it because they loved him. You know, and I just had all this pressure. And the funny thing I talked about, like all these, you know, like all right, I, I so I went down that road, and I. Then I look behind me and like my next, you know, and Chris is like, I'm going to be an actor. It's like, wait a minute. I didn't know that was an option. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Like, how does he get the? And then all the, and then the rest of my brothers went, yeah, I think I want one. We're going to go with Chris on this one. And um, left me hanging, you know. <laughs> were you, were you, was there a lot of drinking it, among you guys growing up? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, but not, not, not that much. Well, the thing is, when we were growing up in Wisconsin, first of all, so we had this kind of a long history on both sides of the family of, of alcohol abuse. You know, we had the family history thing going. We were, so we, we were, so we were, and we were Irish. So we f felt we had to like live up to that standard. And we lived in Wisconsin, which is a train wreck of a city, a uh, 
uh, state when when it comes to uh, alcohol. Yeah, yeah. So we had all all the boxes checked, and um, and then back when we were growing up, the drinking age was eighteen. So which means we probably started at you know sixteen, maybe seventeen. You know, and Chris was actually later. You know, um, in high school uh, at the tail end. So, um, but it wasn't that much. But then by the time I got to college, yeah, college, it just, it just opened up. And I, I think Chris probably felt what I learned now about myself at Georgetown. He probably felt the same thing at, at, um, at Marquette is we're suddenly surrounded by all these really smart people. You come from Madison, Wisconsin, you know, um, it's pretty, pretty even, even territory. But then all of a sudden, like I know for me at was at Georgetown, I'm like, well, yeah. you're in Madison, and you go to Georgetown. You're the guy. I'm absolutely. And but then I it changes a little bit. I mean, I, I just never felt like that. That whole imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. man. I was deep in it. Yeah. I was deep, and I'm like, I don't belong here with these. Like, literally, my my senior year, all of my roommates, they're all CEOs. You know, it's uh, literally, and I'm like, okay, like, you know. Do you understand uh, it more now? That you're, you, oh, you're, that's you're, what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I didn't know that at the time. Yeah. Why I was drinking, but I'm like, I look back, I'm like, that's what it was. You know, it's like I'm, I that that self doubt and fear. Um, now I can, I can, I can point it out, clear as the day. I get it now. What that's, was, what was it like for you? You know, you're, you're drinking. It sounds like you kind of have it under control in, in college, and and uh, or or at least more so than your brother. As he continues to evolve, uh, you said he was a little later in, in the game. But what was it like for you to see him kind of take on a whole different, a whole different light with with the drinking and the using? Or did he change at all? No, no, it really wasn't. I mean, so after graduate, Chris was two years below me, and so after when I graduated, I just followed the crowd up to New York. We all went to New York. I'm like, okay, I'll. I'll do that too. Went into finance because they're all my buddies. Everybody money. else did, right? Just like yeah, the yeah. Wall Street stuff. I yeah, I did. Right, with Bear Stearns, uh huh, Citibank, did it all. And how uh, how are you doing? Are you, are you making some money? You're living in New York. I mean, life. I gotta imagine life's pretty good, at least on the outside, right? No, because I was just having. To, first of all, when you live in the city yeah. at that age, you know you're spending every dime because it's just so much. I was like, yeah, I was like, there's no saving there. It was like, okay, yeah, it's it's twenty four seven. I was like. All right. Um, and I was always kind of like looking to have fun. So, um, uh, yeah, it was always I was there was always that balance between responsibility and I needed, you know, what I said, I needed to have my fun. But what I was really doing was um, really trying to manage all these emotions, you know, in very unsafe and unhealthy ways. Yeah, I just I just felt like I and I'm pulling in. So it, I, it really didn't allow me to to live up to my potential i was because i was always trying to be something that i wasn't i was always trying to be like my you know like all my friends you know these mm-hmm. financial you know girls and these these you know future titans of industry well it's like yeah. you said you follow the crowd up, yep. up, up, up to new york yep yeah. and at the same token i also wanted to kind of have my midwestern family you know uh because you know you know values you know we grew and grow that so i got i got married started having kids and um i thought that you know just being you know a good loving father was 
was um, enough that I was that I was, uh, you know, um, taking care of my family. And it wasn't it's like especially out in New York. No, you need to support your you need to work your ass off to support your family. Then the other stuff, you know, hopefully, you know, comes along. But, you know, and it's woven in there. But, you know, if you're not, you know, um, providing I mean, and we did we did. I mean, I, I there was enough was it was i don't know it was weird it was just uh, i just yeah it sounds like there was stress around it because you're you, you, again you're yeah. you're trying to you keep up with the joneses and sometimes you can end up you know robbing peter to pay paul and you've got all this emotion right that you're yeah, trying to figure you know, out and I get, like everyone else i would get the the phone calls you know at five o'clock when are you coming home these kids yeah. are, i mean you know, I'm like, okay, even when we get on the train right now, I'm not home for an hour, an hour and a half. Right? Yeah. So, but I would say, okay, okay, I'm going to drop everything and I would go home and I would leave work at like 5, 530, like I was in the Midwest and everyone else in Wall Street was like, they just got started. Yeah. Yeah. When did you, when you're looking at your brother and things are starting to come together for him, I guess, uh, and he moves up to New York. Uh, yeah. Are you are you looking at him and are you like, man, he's got it a little easier than I do? Why is this guy comfortable in his own skin, or why is he able? Because that's a pretty that takes balls to go right into acting after you yeah. graduate from Marquette. Yeah, yeah, and he worked for Dad for for like a summer, and then just said, "I'm this isn't my thing, and I'm going to go down and, and do this." And he, yeah, it's amazing how fast it was. He just did it. Um. And you can, again, maybe in, in Chicago at Second City, you know, you can do that. I think Chris and I both had this thing where we're going to put ourselves out there and show people what I, we thought they wanted to see, which we knew deep down wasn't really us. You know, we could, you know, I, I know, I, you know, all these years I'm like. You're a people pleaser. People. Yeah. Like and, me. And, yeah. And that's hard. And yeah. so we have to balance that out. Um, like I know now that when I ba to balance that out, I need to step away and do some self care or just you know just recharge in a very you know. Um, but I like Chris um, for a long time. I did it just the opposite way, which was to you know numb myself, you know, just to you know just drink. And so that's what Chris was doing in. Uh, when he got to New York, he was doing that in Chicago, and you can get away with it in Chicago because, again, it's very normative um, behavior. Like, um, but when he got to New York and it was a real business, it stuck out, and I can see that that he was struggling um, at least with his job. He was he was going to start to kind of get you know he was getting suspended from SNL and like you know. Um, drinking related job loss was something i was very uh, familiar with yeah so i could see that with chris <laughs> you know i'm like man you don't want to do this you want to be like me you know and you were um, talking you were talking to him about this stuff because yeah, you guys were both I in was, new york and uh so you're pretty you, was yeah in wisconsin i mean it was just him and i trying to you know i was trying to help him yeah. but I, I i was that before it was a term i was his first responder but you know not that i knew what that was but it you know as an older brother i also felt as a first responder that i had to solve solve it yeah. i had to like you know figure it out for him and
Welcome to One Star Rewind, a new podcast about those dreaded one-star reviews that every business owner hates to receive, but yet every customer loves to read. During this podcast, we will peel back that one-star review to better understand how it happened, when it happened, and what the business owner is doing after receiving that one-star review. This podcast will be about love, hate, and laughter. On One Star Rewind, we will meet with real business owners who will tell their stories and how they do rely on reviews for their business. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or download us at roguemedianetwork.com. Please subscribe, but only rate and review for not a one-star review. Join us each time for a new review and a new story. Frozen, Frozen, heroes. Gonna tell you about Frozen, Frozen, heroes. Gonna tell you about. Hey, I'm Zach. And I'm Mike. And we have a fantastic new podcast to tell you about. Bros, foes, and heroes. It's the two of us looking into the world of comics, breaking down some characters that you may have never heard of, and some that are just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, so Zach comes up with a character each time, and uh, I go into it just completely blind. I don't know who this person is or what their abilities are or anything, and, and basically, I guess we kind of go over their origin story and just some of the ridiculous stuff that maybe, especially Golden Age stuff. Oh, Golden yeah. Age stuff is always the best, and we will make sure to highlight all of the shenanigans and just absolute weirdness yeah. of everything. Yeah, that's right. So subscribe today and uh, follow us on Instagram at Bros Bros Heroes. And if you don't, I know where you live. Not really, but please subscribe. <laughs> Bros and Bros and Heroes. Um, what are we doing here, Rusty? What are we gonna do? Uh, yep, we're doing the King of the Hill rewatch podcast. King of the Hill yes, rewatch podcast. Yeah, so we're gonna go through one episode at a time. Uh, come along for the ride with us. Come check it out. And give me give me a good um, like Dale Gribble quote to go out on. Wingo, yeah, Wingo, <laughs> Wingo, Wingo. All right, well join us uh, join us for uh, the uh, King of the Hill rewatch podcast. Nine one one, what's your emergency? Do you hear that? It's coming from the house. It's coming from inside the house. Uh, do you mean? Could it be? The Poltergeist. New from Rogue Media, two haunted hotties talking about haunted places. Every episode, we dive deep into the darkest places and give you a bit of history. We're getting spooky in all the right places. You've gobbled your last ghoul. Follow along for the craziest and spookiest stories with Debbie's Dark Tourism. The Stanley Hotel, Winchester House, The Alamo, Hotel Monte Vista, and more spooky places. Find us at the underscore Poltergals, P-O-L-T-E-R-G-A-L-S. Look over your shoulder. It's us, the Poltergals. Wherever you consume the podcast, you can find us there.
when you say a first responder, what what, what do you mean by that? Well, it, like in my family, yeah. the rest of the people who's out in New York. Yeah, okay, that's cool. And I'm like, I'm. It's just he and I in New York, and I'm like, hey, I think Chris is struggling. So, um, whether I wanted to or not, I I was there, and I had to kind of, you know, but I had so much going on myself too. It was hard. You have you did um, such a great job in the in that book, the Chris Farley Show, which people can get out now. It's it's still on Amazon, and it's probably something really cool to get coming up towards the holidays and it's 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 educational um and then after that book they can kind of dive back into to more of what you're doing as far as being an advocate in in the recovery circles today again there's so many things tom that come full circle in the in this whole this whole story i mean when you think when you're writing the chris farley uh show in 2008 you're not you're not a finished product (laughs) not even close which close yeah yeah and and in that book you talk about you guys start to have like some interventions and some of those interventions, you just remind me of my family so much. It's like, we're drinking while we're intervening. Oh, we're talking about Chris's drinking problem. Like we got to get our drink order in first. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, what was some of that? What were some of those instances like when you're trying to get Chris to stop, but you're newly married, you're, you're an alcoholic too. Uh, it's paint that picture for me. What, what's going on? Well, one of the things that I talk about a lot, I didn't know is that um, one of the things that we all throughout growing up, um, we we had one coping mechanism, which was we had literally one emotion we used for everything. Laughter. Can you imagine what that was? Yeah, yeah laughter. laughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The good side is three of my brothers and now my son who's out in L.A., you know, we got really good at it and now they made a career out of it. But it, it was a coping mechanism that turned into a trauma, meaning like uh, whenever somebody like fell and hurt themselves, we would laugh, not out of like, because we were mean, we just thought our humor could bring them out of that. And I, clearly it couldn't, but we would use it for everything. Um, and we never developed any other really emotions, you know? Yeah. Um, and so even in our interventions, you know, it would always end up in laughter because we couldn't go there. We couldn't go to something serious like somebody in our family is in real danger here. Uh, we would, and and now that we're also talking about Chris, so you, we would say, Chris, you do realize something? You know, like last night you did this, and, uh, and it was actually so funny that we would end up laughing. Like one one night we were at up north, one of these interventions the night before we like my dad started out with my dad waking up in the morning going going for his morning juice and he poured juice out and he got he got a screwdriver right in the right in the oh. kisser and because chris took the you know the vodka bottle poured it into the carton and that's what he you know and my dad like <laughs> what's going on here and then he noticed like this bread and bologna trail, like Chris had tried to make a sandwich in the kitchen and he followed it all the way to the bathroom. And that's where he found Chris on the floor of the bathroom, passed out. Oh like, gosh. Yeah. You know, with, with the rest of the sandwich on the, <laughs> like, it was just like this breadcrumb thing. Where's Chris? Like, yeah. follow, follow the sandwich. And, um, so we were talking, so we were trying to like really talk about his, his, uh, his drinking problem. But then we're like, we realized what he did. It was just, like you couldn't not see the humor in it, but it was not the right time to be laughing, obviously. Yeah. But. Well, you guys didn't know what you were doing. And a lot of people, and that is oh. part of what you're doing today and what a lot of us are trying to do, just getting the message out there, educating people. I mean, nobody knew what the hell to do then. 
Really? I mean, you know, especially a family that you grew up, you know, for my family, I know there was, I mean, and my parents loved us to death, but I think there was a stigma for them. Definitely like, oh, my kids are, my kids are screwed up, you know, because of this. And I think they were a little embarrassed, you know, they just didn't know how to handle, they didn't know how to handle it. They didn't know. And uh, it makes perfect sense to me that you're having interventions, you know, during cocktail hour or whatever, and you're going to get you're going to get a drink. But like looking back now, it's like that's as dysfunctional as it gets. And I'll tell you one other thing that we always say about those interventions. You know, there's always that um, when you're talking about somebody like Chris, like, you know, we had this fear that we'd have to bring up our stuff, too. And we didn't want to go there. Yeah. We wanted to talk about Chris's problem, but we weren't ready to go there. And, and to a certain extent, that is true. You know, it's not about us. It's about this 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 person that's really in need, but we couldn't help him as much as we wanted to. We couldn't be as honest as we wanted to because that honesty meant maybe kind of talking about some of our our issues on one side. And then the other thing is when you have somebody that is really has a problem in your family, um, you you don't go to your issues. As long as Chris was around, we could the rest of us could tell ourselves, well, we're not that bad. Yeah. So I guess we're okay. Uh-huh. And I I realized that the first time I the couple times I tried to go to AA meetings, I could always look at somebody across the room and was like, Well, that person drinks more than me. Yeah. Or that person takes drugs and the drink. You I, compare I yourself out. I compared myself out forever. Yeah. That was my barometer. And yeah. it was the wrong barometer, you know. Yeah. Well in in you're comparing yourself to your brother, it's gotta be an interesting situation. I have no idea what this is like. You know, here you are you're drinking, you're struggling, you mentioned it. Uh, and then your brother is, he's like a shooting star. It's got to be almost like, you, you can't even believe it, right? A surreal situation. You're both in the same city, and he's a rising star on Saturday Night Live. Well, there's two things about that. First of all, that's one of the things that always annoyed me, is I was trying so hard for, to have relationships, whether they're friends, girlfriends, whatever it is, and failing you know i was just trying everything i could and then i'd look around and this you know chris this knucklehead behind me was just doing everything the opposite and making friends literally everywhere it's so effortlessly like all my friends would be laughing at something chris would do and i would go don't laugh that's not funny i mean it was hysterical <laughs> but I, wouldn't, I didn't want to you know i'm like don't do that i like like it just I, so there was that kind of resentment too that that i was carrying around that like, how does he do this? Yeah. But there was a really cool thing was when we did get to New York, when he got and he got an SNL. The, the, the beautiful thing about Chris is that um, for the most part, he never, that's why people love him is because he never forgot that he was Chris from Wisconsin. And I remember the first time we went up to SNL when he was gonna get the gig and they called me, he's like, do you want to go to the show tonight? They're they're letting me stick around to go to the show, and we so we went up to the show for the first time. We're watching. I'm I'm at the show with Chris, who's just about to be hired, and we're like, can, we're looking at each other like, can you believe this? We're like, <laughs> and he doesn't understand that this is like the rest of it, like the next five years of his life, he's going to be embedded in this, and we're just like so, like I can't believe we're in we're at the show. Like we just met all these people. When did you notice that it was kind of getting out of control with him? Uh, when he's on that stage, because now it's a whole another story. When he, you know, let's he's high profile now, and again you're drinking, but you see him, he gets in trouble, suspended from SNL. That's a big deal because somebody like Chris has to get sober. People talk about it; it could end up in Page Six or something, and 
there's a lot of pressure to that. I can't imagine if people knew who the hell I was when I was in and out, in and out, you know? You know, the first, I, I used to go to a lot of the after parties. And when we talk about that, like I, now time to time to you know recharge and regroup or whatever it is, I would go to these after parties and I would see just Chris like acting like he was in college at the, you know, the, the, the bar where all the rugby players would hang out. I'm like, dude, and they're like, I know. And, and me being a kind of this New York business guy, I mean, my mind all in, you know, as it always was in Georgia, I would always like, who's, who's in the room. Who's like, who's who and what's going on. And Chris didn't care about any of that stuff. He just was like, I need to like, re I need to unwind. I'm drinking. And I'm like, yeah, but like the CEO of the three studios are here. Like, he didn't care. Yeah, he. I'm like, and that. Just, I'm like, I'm like, dude, you gotta balance that. This is this is is important to your career. Yeah. You know, he didn't. You know, I I don't know. That was that's how I valued things and judged things. He didn't. But when it, you know, at that at the point where I thought that he really should start paying attention to this, and he wasn't. I got a little afraid for him. Yeah, well, one of the things you mentioned in your book, and it's a poignant story. Other people have talked about it as well. Is that Chippendales uh, skit yeah. with 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 him and Patrick Swayze? Chris Rock says, you know, that from that moment on, it, it changed Chris to the point where it, you yeah. know, because because you know, it was it was a fat joke, and I saw it as Chris being super com comfortable in his skin, but some people didn't. And uh, what, yeah. what, what, where, where do you come down on all that? Well, it's interesting. I, it's the first time when when Rock, uh, you know, when we interviewed him and he that was in the book, that was the first time I, it even dawned on me. I'm like, what is he talking about? Like, and my th first thought was, you know, first of all, I was gonna, it's that's Rock's, you know, that's Chris's point of view. So I was just gonna leave it in the book, and I wasn't gonna refute it. I didn't want to be that like you're wrong. But I was like, okay, I'm gonna let him do it, and good thing I did. Um, but my personally thought was like, are you kidding me? I've been seeing I've seen Chris do that same skit since he was twelve in front in the family living room. Yeah. He was always doing that. And when we were up, you know, in, you know, in uh, in college, I would see him in bars. When the band would go on break, and we'd all go to the bar, and we look back on the dance floor, and there's Chris by himself doing that exact same thing. <laughs> and it was hysterical and funny, and like. Um, I was a little, I was a little pissed, you know, that that he was making a career. They're pay, they're paying for him. Like, <laughs> this isn't fair. Yeah, this isn't. He's not. Yeah. He's not acting. Uh -huh. He's doing what he's always done. And so that's how I originally thought about it. Until you know, and then when Rock said that, I went, hmm, I don't think he's right. And then a couple of years later, as I got more into my stuff and understand, like, oh my God, he was hundred percent right. Yeah, and, and there was more. A lot of things that 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 they did like there was like even when he, the last time he hosted they made fun of his drinking and you know his whole monologue was i'm not going to get you know effed up tonight and and they they uh, there's a i found a script in some of his stuff years later um there was a skit they that the writers wrote called the relapse guy and like they're this buddy of theirs that keeps going into you know, relapsing and that was a that was funny to them apparently yeah and yeah so not funny anymore. Yeah, yeah. it's so not funny yeah. anymore. And at the time, like you say that idea, and with sense of humor, you're like, oh, that could be kind of funny. But then when we're, when we're talking about the person who has relapse, right? And it's like, yeah. and you talk about trauma and and all that stuff, and it's it sucks. But like, there's got to be something. You're, you're taking a hit. 
you know, um, if, 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 you're, if you're in his shoes, I would imagine. Where did, as your family, your father, I've, I've done some, some research on this, was a gregarious, charismatic man, but he was a big man. He was 600 pounds when he passed away. Yeah. And food uh, was like love in your family. Uh, but it also sort of turned on you well, guys a little was, bit. It was just like alcohol, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, we used it to manage our emotions, still do. You know, so my dad getting to that size, obviously. And, and this was the thing, you know, and I can see it now that I'm back in Wisconsin, too. Like, my my father was this, you know, Georgetown grad who went to, he went to, um, you know, he went to school with all these, you know, like, big, I mean, you know, he, he went to, his classmates were like, you know, Nino Scalia, who went on to be a chief justice of the Supreme Court. Yeah. He had another uh-huh. buddy that were CEOs. I mean, you know, and, and he went back and he wanted he went to law school for a year at Wisconsin. To, he wanted to be going to politics. He loved politics. And um, then my grandfather had a heart attack. So he took over the family business and he started to have kids and he got married and like, well, that dream's over. I got to I got to take care of my family. And he became this you know, took over this asphalt company where he was going into, you know, these, these counties in Wisconsin, these small rural counties where he'd meet with the, with the county highway commission who was made up of these gentlemen farmers that were, you know, making, you know, bids to, you know, pave the county roads and they loved him. But, you know, here's this guy that had all these dreams, these Georgetown, you know, ambitions. And now he's in, you know, some small county in, you know, having a, you know, burger and comparing himself to other classmates and, 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 and making history. And his brother, his my uncle was vice chairman of city corp. Oh, so wow. he in, in New York and, you know, uh, you know, and, and he was always, you know, always getting compared. My grandmother was always talking about her, her banker sons. They had, she had three sons that were, all my uncles were bankers and dad was just took over the family business. And Isn't that interesting though? And do you notice that more, the more and more we, we get further down the road with recovery, I know this stuff with my father It all, I have light bulb moments, you know, 10 years sober now, 11 years sober. And it's just like, Oh, maybe my dad was feeling that way yeah, about that. Right? You know what I mean? Maybe he was coping with feeling less than which oh by the way is bullshit he's raising a family he's doing a great job you know what i mean but that you compare yourself to other people and uh now you're you're eating as a coping mechanism was was yeah. he was he a big drinker too oh yeah okay. but you know the thing is he was so big that you know you i never saw him i never saw him drunk yeah but like like every day or two you know there'd be a new you know door you know the handle doors you know the big bottle yeah. you know uh, emptied in the trash and so yeah no it was it was it was a lot uh and it was just always out there that's kind of what he did uh but you never saw and, and that's one of the things he just couldn't understand with chris it's like i don't get it you know i i i drink but you know i i you know i, I take care of my career it's like dad yeah. for yourself you you walk walk in at 10 a.m and no one's you know asking where you were yeah how, how much you talk about the pressure it seems like your typical alcoholic like me, a sensitive guy, uh, and and it seems like your brother was too. And how much did the pressure of of you think SNL and that environment get to him, or 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 lead to more drinking, eating, whatever you do to cope with that stuff? Oh, I, all the time. Again, he had that that 
imposter kind of syndrome thing too. And I remember him, I could never understand. He would, people were, he was, he was Chris Farley, you know, like, you know, in, in a couple of years, like he was the guy and people would say, your brother's so funny or Chris, you're so funny. We love you. And, and he just wouldn't believe it. Like, really? And now all these years later, I'm doing all these speeches and all these motivational talks and people come up to me and it's like, Oh my God, you, you, you helped me so much. I go to, I do a lot of speakers meeting at, at AA meetings. People are like, Oh my God, that was amazing. And I'm like, was it? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm the same way, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, it can't. No, okay. Yeah. I, I don't get it. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, that's what Chris was going. That's, I could, that's, that's what, that's what Chris. That's so interesting you say that. That's like one of those light bulb for me, right? Light bulbs for me right now. It doesn't matter what scale it's on. It's basically somebody saying, you did a good job and you're not believing it. Whether you're yeah. the star of Saturday Night Live or you just did a kick-ass job at a speaker's meeting, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's know, all relative. Yeah, when I talk about like, you know, not having other emotions to, to go for. I remember the first time in recovery – Somebody said, well, you should do a gratitude journal. And I'm like, all right. So I like, I sit down and I'm like, write gratitude along the top of the page. And for the next hour, I looked, I was just staring at this blank page. And I finally went, really? Nothing? You're <laughs> grateful for nothing? You can't come up with a single thing? And it's not that I wasn't grateful. It's just that I was thinking of gratitude in these grand terms i'm i'm grateful for my maserati you know, my, or my, my my huge car like my huge yeah, house I'm yeah yeah for my, my children that i love and and it's and like yeah that's gratitude yeah, yeah. but you you're missing these all these little things that happen to you like every second of the day and you 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 need to you need to focus on those things yeah and i'm like okay i like yeah i i don't i haven't kind of I haven't worked I haven't kind of figured that out I haven't I still struggle with that but I'm I'm working on it but it was, that's one of those things like uh I'd rather just use humor if you don't mind <laughs> well none of us are finished products you know, know what I'm saying so then that, that's the thing like I want to be able to come up with this incredible gratitude list or I want to be honest all the time or I have this idea of this furnished person I'm supposed to be and it's just not real you know and like that's the thing I learned in 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 the rooms and you know, take it easy on yourself, right? That's what oh. I, I constantly am beating the shit out of myself on, on bad days. And I'm just like, you know, take it easy on yourself, right? I mean, like things, you know, like, like you, I want to get back into your story a little bit. You are, you're now, I'm, you're talking all over, you know, and, and you, you carry this message. You started after your brother died, uh, yeah. the Chris Farley Foundation, and you really, you talk about it like, you know, you're, you're a marketing, a sales guy. Uh, so you kind of, you saw a need right away. When you say, I go into, and I'm talking to these people, it's kind of like, it's canned or whatever. So you dip into the improv pool yourself and you figure that's how I'm going to talk to people. Well, that was my thing. I, you know, I was going into schools because that's where kids were. And I looked around, I'm like, okay, all of these prevention programs are all, information and knowledge based and education based because that's who's delivering it professional teachers and like but there's still a problem so yeah. what's what are they missing and i you know i knew i had to use humor so i knew i could use humor in the I, to get their attention so I, at least you know my brothers taught me like you've got to connect with your audience so you've got to connect with your audience it's all about connection you know, in so many ways anything so absolutely yeah. and then i said like well how do they do it 
they all like, all right, they all went through Second City and learned improv. So I studied improv and I learned that it was developed. Uh, this woman developed these these exercises and, and games to reach inner city at risk kids to teach them how to communicate better and form ensembles, form peer enhanced environments as opposed to peer pressure environments. That's I'm what like, started improv? Yeah, it was a woman. Uh, Viola Spolin was working in, in Chicago at uh, in like the Cabrini Green area, and she was trying to get you know um, kids to 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 communicate better. And then like every, then these comedians found it and made a art form out of it. But it started no with shit the, with intentions. And for twenty five years, I've been trying to bring it back to that and yeah. just being the evangelist. Like this, <laughs> what it's this is uh, how good it is. Yeah, and, that's amazing all about connection and then in a post-covid world i'm like now do you see it yeah now, you know like you know how important connection is the rest of the world suddenly knows what it feels like and they couldn't handle it and so now COVID, there were certain fights in walmart yeah because you know? they felt the isolation right yeah. that, that a lot of addicts a, a lot of addicts we, feel yeah i've always felt yep and, and part of your message continues and then so you you do the work right and and whether you're drinking at the time i know you had periods of sobriety where you just wouldn't drink but you never were like sober practicing a program or working on i thought it was in that was enough i was like but i saw like i would get five years and yet I'm still creating these train wrecks. I'm losing jobs, getting divorced. I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. But I'm sober. Yeah. Like, why is this? I don't get it. Yeah. Did you ever go back? Because then, you know, back to, to your brother and, and you're part of that. He gets, so he, I guess, bottoms out uh, some, somewhat in New York or definitely does. And then he gets sober. I don't, I don't think enough people talk about this and it shows yeah. how, you know, this stuff works. He was sober for three years. I love talking about that. You know, there was there's some there was some beautiful stories. Dude, I, I had no idea till I till yeah. I started to, to 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 do the research on you, and I feel like I knew a lot about your brother. I had no clue. Well, that's what made him one of the funniest people around. You know, is because he was working his, his recovery program. Yeah, you know, he was funny. You know, the first couple of years on SNL, but when he came back from this, his second trip to treatment. And instead of going back to his big apartment on Riverside Drive, he went back to uh, a, a sober living house in Lower Manhattan, you know, on TV every weekend, but checking into his cot every night. And that's what made the difference. All of a sudden, boom, you know, and, and, and for me, I just what I noticed was uh, like, all right, he's dressing better, you know, and he's, <laughs> you know. He's, yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. But he's my, and that, my, yo, that's the beauty of it. You're talking about it. I, I believe, just because it's my experience, the long-term recovery thing really works. Like I went to a treatment center, and then afterwards I went to an extended care. Now, I wasn't on. I was working at KFC. I wasn't on Saturday Night Live, so I can't even imagine what the hell's that. That is like you know. But he did it. He had the humility. In New, yeah, in New York, yeah, to have this and then just say no. I got a. I got a. I got a meeting at nine o'clock. I gotta go. I gotta go. And he would do it. And for three um, years, dude. That's yeah. a long time. And Boy, I, so there's a great story I'd yeah. like to tell you in that time. So Please. my son was born around that time, and uh, he had born in New York hospital, and he had kind of a kind of a heart thing. That he had to stay in the ER for like a week to, to fix it up. Um, and so we went home. We had two girls, uh, two, his two older sisters. And so we were coming back to the city to pick the, the kid up um, from the hospital. He's, he's all better. And we asked Chris, like, can you watch the girls? And he was so thrilled that I had even asked him. 
It's like, yeah, I'll, I'll babysit for the afternoon. So we go to his, we drive in from, from uh, Westchester where we live, get to his apartment, ring the doorbell, no answer. And like, we're there like five minutes. I'm like, oh no, what happened? He was sober for like a, you know, a year and a half. Like, like we weren't like kind of, I just had bad yeah. kind of feeling like this. And then just when I, you know, you know, for about five, I look up the block and around the corner comes Chris with these, under his arm are these two huge Barney dinosaur stuffed animals and grocery bags full of Cheetos, ice cream, <laughs> the worst the worst, best baby yeah. you can ever imagine. And all these like Disney VHS movies. And he was like, I, I'm sorry, I'm late, I'm sorry, I'm late. And he was so, but just so happy that, that, and I think he knew that his sobriety gave him this gift of an afternoon. Like, yeah, they were providing, it was providing him opportunities. Yeah. Oh my God. And then and, you, you're riding with him through the whole thing. I mean, he's, what I love about your relationship with him is he continues to involve you. Uh, clearly he was like, you know, over the moon about you. He has you come to his third year, um, anniversary. Yeah. And what was yeah. that like? Uh, that was the same thing. Like, you know, because we always had this kind of, you know, kind of, you know, he was always pushing people's buttons. Always, he was always trying to like, you know, take me down a peg. He always thought I was <laughs> too serious and too awesome. <laughs> so he goes, yeah, can you come to my third year anniversary? I'm like, I'd love to like, yeah, all right, give me, you know, where's the address? And, he, and I start walking, I'm following this address, and I realize I'm looking deeper and deeper into the west side, and I realize I'm in the middle of Hell's Kitchen. My first thought was, oh, you jerk. You know, I thought he'd <laughs> give me some wrong address just to mess with me. But I, I found the address, and I went upstairs in this, like, looked like a bombed-out building with every, like, like bum in the neighborhood, you know, that they – and there's Chris in the front of the room with his little blazer on, and – he's telling this room full of people like, you know, I, I'm, I'm no different from you. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm in the background going, yeah, you're a little different, dude. <laughs> uh, man. And he's so serious. He's like, no, I woke up this morning. I, I prayed that I was going to be sober today. And here we are at the end of the day, we did it. And we get like coffee and cake as the payoff. Like this isn't life great. And I'm like, who is this guy? It was like the first time I saw Chris, like totally in recovery and working this program, and just and I knew he was always kind of being there for other people. But I, him, this is where he met every day for his AA meetings. Like, like he's on SNL and he's going to Hell's Kitchen for these meetings. I'm like, okay. Well, what was something. the support for? Like, were your parents just over the moon? Your sister and your brothers were they like, wow, this is very very special? No. No, it wasn't. Oh, really? At all. No, I don't think we really got it. You know, at least, you know, we were just, ha you know, I think my parents were just happy that, you know, he was going to keep his job and he was not being, you know, destructive to himself anymore. But I mean, I remember I'm, you know, this was before that when we first got like into recovery. I remember Christmas time. It's vivid in my mind. It's, it's, you know, I feel bad about it, but I remember Christmas, uh, Christmas Eve where, you know, we usually, you know, we open our presents and, you know, I started having brandies and, you know, up all night joking around. And I remember this one particular one when Chris was out of treatment and we're all doing the same thing. And I vividly see this picture of Chris sitting amongst us with his mug of coffee, just trying to be sober in this place where he should have felt, you know, trusted and yeah. accepted. 
you know, trust me. And we, you know, because we, we thought, you know, that's Chris's problem. It's not ours. And we, and yeah, yeah. It was hard. It's hard. I think we, it's so, I, I wouldn't say we never got it, but we were certainly slow to get it. And we didn't change our behaviors at all. My mom did. She was the first one, even before Chris, she's been sober now almost 30 years. And, you know, she that the way that she kind of did it was I'm just going I'm going to be the the, the model, and um, uh, you know she didn't you know you know uh, didn't require anything from us. She just was going to be sober. I need to do this for myself. And if you see that that and value it, um, okay. But if you yeah. don't, I can't I can't make you. And it took all of us years. Yeah, you know. it takes what it takes, and sometimes, unfortunately, in your brother's case, you know, it it doesn't, yeah. you know, it. And and I wanted to get your insight a little bit on this because, again, you go to that meeting for his three years, and you're still you're not sober, um, nope. but you're supportive. I mean, you're there in person, and you, you, yeah. you're rooting them off, rooting them on, even if you don't get it. But then, Tom, you you kind of witness, and I I think it's interesting for people to see this, and it's a warning sign for. I don't know, people who are out there and still drinking and using and maybe listen to this or people who have family members or friends affected by this. You witness the anatomy of a relapse, really. He, he's very successful on Saturday Night Live. He's sober. And then what happens? Um, well, I, met, I was there, unfortunately, for that one, too. Um, so he had gone through uh, uh, SNL and he started going out. He made Tommy Boy and went out to L.A. because he was going to make movies now. And he came back um, a year later and, he, he, you know, he was making um, he had a two movie deal for him and David to make two movies. Tommy was so successful and he wanted to, like, start going on his, his career. Yeah. But David said, no, you, we, I, I need you're going to always have movies. I need you to make this movie. I need the second. So they fast tracked Black Sheep. You We're know, talking about David Spade, obviously, for people that don't yeah, know. Yeah, with David Spade. Yeah. And so the two of them, they, they did it. And, but it was just really, they just wanted to get it, you know. We hear this it. all the time. And if you even peek into show business, so like the two, three picture deals where the couple last couple are just rushed and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And and Chris uh, knew it. Um, he called me, came back in the city. He's like, yeah, they're doing a sneak. You know, we're almost done. We had a couple endings we're looking at. We're doing a sneak preview at a movie theater. They used to do these, you know, live audience. And, and he goes, we're going to sit in the back and just kind of see the reaction. So he picked me up. Um, or I went down to his hotel room in the city. And we took a limo out to Jersey to this theater. But at the, you know, at, so Chris knew it was not the his best work. And he's at this thing. And, like, all of these, like, big, heavy-duty studio people are there. His manager's there. And he was, and it was just he, and he, David, and I. And in this hotel room before, he's like going to the mini bar, like picking up all these bottles and putting them in his pocket. And I'm like, "What? He's been sober three years." I'm like, "Dude, what are you doing?" He goes, "Oh, you know the the limo driver likes, you know, when we go to the movie, I always give him a couple of these. They, they like, you know, they kind of spend the time." And I'm like, it didn't even dawn on me. <laughs> You're giving your limo driver for poo. So yeah, like, yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, like, I didn't right. get, yeah, I just thought of that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't. Well, I didn't at the time. Yeah, yeah. Like, but you bought um, it. You're his yeah. brother. You're kind of like, oh, okay. I yeah. Yeah. I, he was three years old. I thought, you know, that's that's all. Well, you know, yeah. you're, you're, that's it. You're you good. You got it. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we go to the movie and it's just, you know, Chris wasn't happy. And 
and he was doing weird things like uh, he goes, I, I gotta go to the bathroom. And I go, yeah, I do too. So I go to the, back to his bathroom and it's just like this one room, just one stall thing. And, and I followed him and he goes, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm going to the bathroom. We've done this since we were 10. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, you know, why not, you know, we can go to the bathroom at the same time. And he goes, no, I, I need my privacy. I'm like, that's weird. Mm-hmm. So he was doing those things. And I'm like, finally I go, I, I'm going home. All right, I'm out of here. And I get this call from my father the next morning. He's like, what happened last night? I'm like, I don't you know. The movie was okay. I'm like, you know, Chris trashes the part, his, his uh, um, uh, hotel room, and he's in trouble. And, uh, and you know, he's typical Irish, you know, it was my fault because I yeah. was – you know, the last one there. <laughs> I love how tight your family is, by the way. I mean, it's a, yeah. I mean, the fact that your father is somehow involved in that. I mean, he's got this superstar and you're this established guy, like professional and your dad's calling you saying, what did you do? <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and it was in really, so it was, he, my dad was never so much involved in like, you would see like a, like the, these parent managers of, of stars. He just wanted the family dynamic to kind of be what it is. Yeah, that's what yeah. it sounds like. Yeah, he wants everybody safe and everybody to get along. Yeah, managing yeah. any careers, but he was being a dad. He was managing us. And one yeah. of the things I, I I love about your 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 brother um, hearing this, and I love about you, you really respected and and and, and loved your parents, and you, and you wanted their love too, and and you talk about. Towards you know the devastating night where Chris ends up you know passing away and dying is, you know you guys go out for dinner and he's back I guess in Chicago and he's going to see your parents and there's like a little bit of he knows he's not sober and there's a little bit of anxiety around that. What, what you know what happens that night at that dinner and you know take us through that. Well, I wasn't there. That was my brothers uh, Kevin and Johnny. They were there okay. and I because I had my family out in in uh, in um, Connecticut. You know, we had our own thing. I wasn't. Oh, so they were in Chicago. Okay. Yeah. 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 And a lot of our Chicago buddies were there. It was, yeah. They went to, you know, Gibson's and he had a big steak and they were doing all the stuff. And then like everything with Chris, you know, you start to peel off. Like I'm, I'm out, you know, like in my book, um, uh, one of our buddies described Chris and really it's true for all of us is, you know, the first hour drinking, you know, with Chris is fun. The second hour is the best time of your friggin' life. The next five hours, though, are brutal. And that's where, you know, Chris, because Chris, we, none of us have an off switch. Yeah. And so after that dinner, it was all fun. And, you know, it was that was that second hour. But all of a sudden, it was just my brother Johnny was like, I got, I need my rest. I got to go. And that's when Chris just found, you know, just the, the bad people. And yeah. He was dragged around from, Party to party. Look, we got Chris Farley. And you were like, you know, yeah. and it just ended up. And your you brother know. probably, I mean, people got to rap. People got to sleep. Like, that's no, it's bigger than us. You know, you can't stop that yeah. freight train at some point. Right? I mean, it's. Yeah. So then you live in the wake of this this tragic situation. But I do love how you say your brother is, he's, alive, he's almost as alive as he's ever been. And. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the book. With that because if i wrote the book i would have at that time you know i would have um had a different you know i would have talked about some of my you know resentments and this and this is how i remember chris and that would just have been about my my relationship with it but instead we interviewed all these friends from him growing up to 
you know, summer camp to Marquette to Second City, SNL, Hollywood. And I was amazed when I kind of pulled it all together. I'm like, oh, wow, all these different people, they totally got Chris. I'm like, oh, you're right. You know what? He, like like with Rock, I'm like, he had a better perspective than I did. Yeah. And I, and I like to say that I have a better relationship with Chris now than I ever did when he was alive because I, I, I can give up some of those resentments. I have empathy for some of his, you know, his behaviors. And I, you know, I understand some of his traumas that he carried around because I carry around some of the same yeah. things, you know. It's yeah. funny. Somebody, I've always gotten asked the question, what do you miss most? And for years I used to say I, what I miss most about Chris is the, the, um, the big bear hug he used to give me, you know, when like we hadn't seen each other and he'd walk in the door, hey, Tommy. And, and it was just so like physical and genuine and just, you know, lingering. And I, I, I always remember that. And I, I, I totally miss that the most. But now when people ask me that question, what do you miss most about Chris? I, I honestly say I would have loved to have been um, in recovery with Chris. I think we would have really, uh, helped each other if not you know learned from some things it would have been amazing because i love my life in recovery and i think uh i would have loved it with chris too yeah you give me a lot of gratitude because i mentioned that my brothers are both sober they're older than yeah. me and sometimes we're, we are amazed we're like this is unbelievable you know the odds yeah. are not in our favor um for that yeah. to happen so i appreciate you saying that it makes me treasure it uh even more uh and and so you I won't keep you forever. I want to wrap up with 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 your story a little bit because I think it's pretty amazing. I mean, you're going through, you're talking at these schools like we talked about earlier. You're using this improv to connect with these kids, and then at some point, Tom, you're like, I got I got to get on the bus, and not just like, hey, I got to not drink. I I've got to get involved because I've got all this other shit. Um, you know, and we don't even really notice it until. At least I didn't until I got sober. I mean, to stop drinking for me was a huge deal. It was monumental, right? And then really? I'm, yeah, sitting in a rehab, and I'm like, oh wow, and stuff starts to come up, and you know, they're just they're just literally like, I'm I'm thawing out there. But then the real work starts. How did that work out for you? How did you find recovery, like a recovery, like a twelve step that you work today? And what was that journey like? And yeah, and I'll ask you a couple things after yeah. that. Yeah, well, I mean, again, I had done this, you know, five years and then I, you know, I would, five years then I would tell myself, you know, well, I can have, you know, I'm Irish, so I can have one Guinness on St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> and, you know, that's what my mind would tell me. And uh, within, you know, months I was back on varsity, you know, I was like, what happened? <laughs> you know, varsity. like, and I would do that for yeah. an extended period. And then I'm like, I would, you know, have a lot of other train wrecks and broken relationships. And I'm like, okay, I, this isn't working for me. I'm going to be sober again. I did that again and again. And then this, this last time again, I was like, I'm getting old. I'm, I'm, I'm smart enough to know that I'm, I'm, I'm pro I'm making dumb decisions. I'm like spending more time leaving a party, like thinking about what like back roads I'm going to go home on yeah. to avoid, you know, detection. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm smart enough to know that that's, this is really dumb. Yeah. So it's, you, you get it. Like, and yeah. it's, I don't know. I, I think a lot of it has to do with just, there are a lot of similarities. Yeah. And you know, like I, 
I don't know if you're getting my story, but I certainly get yours. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Go back. I was I wanted to bust your chops a little bit. So, go, oh, so yeah, um, you talked about yeah, this time was different. You, you were able to get into it. So this last time, I'm like, okay, I gotta, I'm doing stupid things, and I'm getting old, and this is stupid. And so I stopped drinking again. And I was like four months into it, and a friend of mine called me, who I now work with, actually, um, that I'd done a lot of work with back in the day. I hadn't seen her in a while. And it was before COVID. And she goes, um, hey, just, just call me. How you doing? I'm like, I proudly tell her I haven't had a drink in four months. And she goes, that's great. She goes, why don't you, uh, why don't we have coffee? I'd love to reconnect with you. I said, I'd love to have coffee with you. She goes, great. Well, why don't you meet me um, Saturday morning, nine o'clock in the basement of the Presbyterian church? I'm like, okay. I gotcha. Okay, yeah, here we go. Uh... And like, but it, it was the right person of the right, this is somebody that I had, I had um, total trust and acceptance. And I had done so much work with her. I saw how many people she's helped. And like we'd say in improv, I said yes to it. I said, yes, I will do that. And I went and it wasn't pretty. It's, you know, I, I had an audience and, you know, attention, uh, you know, and I tried to be funny and, um, you know, I, I didn't get the response I usually get with some of my humor, like, you know, read chapter five. I'm like, I'll do it. And I'll do it in a, you know, British accent. <laughs> and people are like, okay, yeah, yeah, funny guy. And yeah. I'm like, this isn't fu- this is funny stuff. <laughs> I'm giving you my best stuff here. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I just then I just started just shut up and listen, and I started, and that's when I realized that it wasn't about being sober. I was it wasn't pointing out who's drinking more than me. I started saying, "Oh, I think like that person." Like when somebody would share, I'm like, oh, "I did that." I'm like, it wasn't about sobriety. I realized was giving me the clarity to deal on the uh, the stuff that really was important. The you know all this trauma and the issue so uh that's when i'm like that's what this is about okay i'm in i i i this is my i i i i feel totally connected to this group how, how did that change your message uh this now you're you're this person who's maybe feeling that light turn on right like you're well, feeling still, filled yeah. and you're going well, out like, and you're talking to people a lot of things it, everything hit, hit me at once so so right after that um um, COVID started and I, and I'm like, I started doing a lot of webinars with, with, um, Hazleton, which I had done a lot of stuff with. And Chris went there and got, was very successful there. And we were doing these webinars and I would tell my story and Chris's story, the whole thing. Um, and the more I talked about, we were talking about the coming storm, like, you know, there was a, an epidemic before the pandemic. So it's going to be even worse when we get down, there's going to be be people living the pandemic with behaviors they didn't have going in. So we were talking about, and I was talking about connection, importance of connection. The more I talked, the more I talked about this, what's coming after COVID. I'm like, you know, I've been talking about this for 25 years. I need to do something more. I need to get people into treatment. People are going to need not only, um, you know, what I can bring in this attention and messaging and and get, you know, attention like the Farleys have always been in, able to do, uh, Chris more than any of us, uh, you, you you really can't ignore uh, us. So uh, um, and use that to to a positive end and and get people in treatment. So I I hooked up with Rosecrans and and I said you know um, I can I can I can help people I can I can 
kind of delivers this message. So it's it's getting people into into in, finally not just talking about but getting people into treatment. I still go in and talk to kids about motivational stuff and the importance of connection. But the third thing I think was really was important that I didn't realize how, how important was the need to have people in the treatment field that are also in recovery. There is yeah. not as many as you think. Yeah. And there's a lot of clinicians, a lot of people that, that know the science of addiction, but um, you have to marry that with how we think. You have to understand that more than anything. And and then you can really help people. But um, uh, I think, you know, there's some, there's some positive movement in that direction too. What do you think, a couple more things, what do you think people can do? Uh, and this is just, I want to dip into this because you're, you know, another alcoholic and you've been around this, headed into the holidays. If somebody's listening to this, yeah. headed into Christmas and they're just sober, how, how do people navigate that? How, how would you tell a sponsee to navigate that? I mean, there's different situations for everybody, but overall, do you have any like helpful hints or anything? Well, this is where the, the that recovery like kind of really connected what I've been talking about all these years about ensembles and, and improv. All of a sudden, I felt like, like, I talked about it, but I, I honestly, you know, like when people say, well, what do you mean by that? I'm like, I don't know. Just, just, I don't know. Um, I, I gave some answer, but now, now I'm in this recovery community. I'm like feeling what it feels like to be trusted and accepted and, and, and feeling deep belonging. I'm like, this is, this is it. And now I tell people like, you know, this is your, your foundation, your touch point, but it's not all about staying in the recovery community, their life is still happening out there. So you can go out into the world, you can go to a holiday party at your work and stuff like that. But it, as soon as you don't feel that this is a, a you know, a, a trusted, accepting environment, like you feel when you're in a meeting, if you don't feel that, you have two choices. You can either uh, leave, find a different environment, leave, or you can stay there if you have to be there if it's for work or whatever it is. You can stay there, but you got to tell yourself, this isn't my ensemble. I don't need to impress these people. I don't need, I just need to be here and I need to be my authentic self. And it's not about, you know, all this other stuff. Just again, you know, be yourself, be authentic, be easy on yourself um, or leave. Yeah. But, but you don't have to. You don't have to go through the grinder like you, well, like we always did in those situations. I'm happy I asked that question. Last thing, your family. Uh, you told a story. I, I, I think I read it or I heard it. Where can you remind me of my dad a little bit? Um, my dad was like, even we don't even know. There were times where my dad didn't drink. We don't even know because he was always the same guy. Because he never went to like you know meetings or anything. He was just dry. And you yep. talked about you're out to dinner with one of your daughters, and there's something going on with the waiter. Right. Tell that story yeah. real quick. But I mean, because I think that is sobriety to me. It is. It, there's two things I'll tell you. Know, so, yeah. And I didn't because, again, I was so externally focused on my relationships that when I started working my program, then I'm like, it's just like, you know, control things. You know, the whole surrounded prayer. I'm like, yeah, people don't understand how how integral that is to, you know, everything. And so we're, it's there was a lull in covid. And so restaurants opened up again. They're like, "Hey, it's over." And you know, it wasn't. But we went, and um, she came in from New York to visit. And the guy met us. The manager met us at the door, and it's like, "Well, we don't have menus. You know, you order on your phone. 
and then somebody will, you know, we don't have waiters, you know, somebody will just bring your food out. I'm like, cool. And then I got really old man. So I'm like, all right, I got a question. Like if I'm on my phone ordering my lunch and she's ordering her like, but I want to pay for both. How does that happen? <laughs> like, you know, and he's like, well, if you do need a menu, I'm like, no, no, I didn't say that. I don't want a menu. I got this. I want to, you know, I like technology. And uh, I just wanted, and, and I go, you know what? I caught myself. I go, you know what? We'll figure it out. We'll, we'll figure it out. We'll, whatever it is, you know, even if I've got a hand or might put this credit card into your phone, um, I go, we got it. I'm sorry. And I go back and it, she pauses and she goes, and I was, then I was completely overly nice to the guy. This is your little, daughter. Yeah. No, to the major. Yeah. Okay. So my daughter looks at me and she goes, she pauses and she goes, do you know, dad, like when we were growing up, you would have those moments and we all knew just to stay away the rest of the day. Yeah. And I'm like, what? Like, you know, like, yeah, the smallest thing, but you would just carry that with you. And every other little thing that happened on the day, got a piece of that shit that you were carrying with you this day. So we, we avoided you. And she goes to see you catch yourself like that and be nice. That guy was, uh, was pretty amazing. But then, because then right after that, because then, then I looked at her, I'm like, I'm really sorry. I want to be present here. It's about us. I didn't want that to think. She goes, you never apologized before. Yeah. It's like you would just do that. And, I, and what I realized is what I was watching was a relationship healing. Like then I had no, like, but I'm not actively trying to do that. I'm just trying to be who my best self and my authentic self and, and work my recovery. And in the process, you know, people, you know, I, and I see this, not just my daughters, but, and my kids, but the, the people start, I, I started attracting people. Mm -hmm. And so I, and in this case, you know, a strained relationship was, was healing before my eyes, just me being myself, my, you know, that who she always wanted to see that. And we and appreciate people for saying stuff like that because, you know, maybe you don't pick up on that if she doesn't mention yeah. mention that. You know, you just kind of blow by it. Like there is a change happening in us and outside of us if we're working this deal. And the people closest to us know how we're doing. Yeah. You know, they they know they see it more than anybody. Yeah, and you know, and and she said she even see that with her with their mother with my ex wife. You know, like I I'm not a threat to her anymore. I'm not like a this. You know, she I don't I don't I don't. I, I, we have the best relationship in the world and because and not maybe not in the world yeah. <laughs> but, uh, um, we're, we're fine now yeah. because I'm just I don't care and somebody asked me about what's the difference between recovery and long-term recovery I'm like well I, I don't know but if, if I have to answer it I would say this when I first got divorced and somebody asked me, why did you get divorced? I used to say, because my wife didn't respect me. She didn't have my back. She didn't, you know, um, didn't support me, blah, 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 blah. Then I got into recovery and I started answering like, well, that same question I would say, well, if I'm being honest, you know, I didn't respect her either. I didn't, you know, support her. I, I should, you know, we, we, we really, really weren't there for each other. And then a few more years into recovery, when somebody asked me that, I'm like, you know, to be honest, I wasn't very supportive and didn't wasn't very um, respectful, period. Yeah. There's nothing with her. And people are like, you know, and that's, you know, just just living that example on, and across the board on everything in every relationship. It's like it, it's not about them. 
dude it's about like you yeah just fix your stuff and and uh and 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 hopefully those other people will you know you're not a threat to them and they'll come around they'll they'll you know maybe that relationship will be repaired too over time on their time frame you know because it's they control what they control and if it doesn't it doesn't but you know just you know drive your own car it's yeah. he, it's healing when that stuff comes out of your mouth it's just like the truth like maybe i, I wasn't supportive I, you know just like owning oh, it for me yeah. that's huge because i have i same I, I have a problem even in sobriety right getting to that truth to whatever i want to tell you to impress you tom i hear myself say that yeah. all the time yeah 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 you're the best dude I, I cannot thank you enough for this i really appreciate it fun yeah. Thanks for all you do, Pete. I appreciate it. Yeah, and thanks for carrying the message. And yeah, I mean, like, uh, I just think it kicks ass that you're able to, to be a light for change, and you keep moving around out there. So thank you very much, and thanks for the time. Thanks so much. You got it, man. Take care, bud. See Later. Ya. Yep. See ya. Thanks so much for listening to the Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, and of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Network production. 